about uh, the church today, and just as I was thinking about that this week, I'm just so thankful for, uh, for North Avenue, so thankful that y'all would um, invest in each other and, and growing in the Word, and uh, especially, and I would have to say this, I guess our intention in planting a church almost six years ago was to, to have sound teaching, and I am just so thankful for Papa and uh, Greg and Scott and Mark and I feel like I learned so much from, from those guys and enjoy this so much. Uh, just the, the ability to be able to learn together and to grow together and to uh, teach together. And so um, thank you. Thank you for um, just the way you've invested in, in us, in our church. And we want to be especially uh, prayerful for uh, Greg today. He is uh, teaching um, a three-week new members class. That's uh, just starting today and running for three weeks, and um, there'll be a number of folks um, over there that, that may normally be in Saint School today, so it would be over there. And uh, so, Scott, would you start by praying for uh, Greg and the, uh, the potential new members over there and for our study? Sure. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we're thankful for uh, Greg Rentz uh, and the, ways, the many ways you have gifted him. Uh, certainly with organization and uh, knowledge uh, of your word, and uh, he seems to be perfectly suited to teach that new members class. Uh, so thank you uh, for his willingness to do it and his giftedness to be able to do it. Uh, I pray that uh, these next three Sundays, potential new members would be uh, it would just go well, uh, that uh, the new members would, would learn about our church, and Greg would be, be faithful to, to teach uh, what our church is about, and uh, just pray that would be a, a good time. Uh, there, and uh, I pray for our time here. We're, we're thankful for this time uh, every week that we can gather here and uh, open up this Grudem book and open up your word and, and learn from Grudem and learn from your word. And as we come to study the, the doctrine of the church, uh, I do pray that we'd walk away with a greater appreciation for uh, this local church, North Avenue Church, as Jerry has already mentioned, uh, that we'd come away with a greater love and appreciation for the church, uh, that the church is, is a gift uh, from you and uh, we're so thankful for the church, and uh, just give us wisdom as we talk about this chapter, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Mm, amen. Thanks. Mark, could you start us by um, just helping us to understand what the church really is, and then, um, and I'd also like to just hear your thoughts about your appreciation for, for North Avenue, too, because um, oftentimes we get toward the end, and, and uh, we're going to be able to, we'll run out of time. Yeah, no, that, that's really helpful. Uh, the, the local church, um, you know, I don't know if this is something you've ever thought about, but people sometimes ask a question like, you know, if, if three Christians who just kind of have kind of coincidentally met up somewhere, and maybe they're at a restaurant, and they're sitting together, uh, and they're talking about the Bible, and maybe there's three or five of them sitting there enjoying their dinner, talking about the Bible, they don't go to the same church, you know, they're just kind of friends, they're together, they're talking, is that a church? Because people will say, you know, where two or three are gathered together, there I am in your midst, and so uh, that's got to be a church or something like that. And I, I think there's a lot of confusion on, the, on this kind of thing. So, uh, it is wonderful for Christians who are from different backgrounds, different churches to get together and to talk about God's Word. I mean, that is a… I hope that you all have friends who are members of other churches who are, who are faithful to the Lord, who, who you still speak to and talk to and are edified by. But um, it, it is not the case that five Christians around dinner at the Outback Steakhouse constitutes a church. Um, the, 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 a church is going to be something where you have 
This, and we'll get into these in the next couple weeks as well. You're going to have the, uh, the, the giving of uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper are going to be a, a fundamental part of the local church. You're going to have a church government structure. And this is going to hopefully, and there, there are less and more healthy versions, but biblically, there should be a plurality of, of elders. Uh, and then even as we're talking about adding deacons now, uh, very typically deacons will come along too to, to meet needs. And then there's members who are ultimately keeping each other accountable, loving each other, caring for one another. And... Um, that, I think that without membership, church leadership, like elders and deacons, things like that, you really need a lot of these components to come together to create a faithful local church. Yeah, you've helped us with the importance of church membership. Tell us about that again, because that's just just vital in, in this, kind of in our whole understanding of the church. Yes, and I, I don't, I, I need to come up with a fresh il illustration. So some of you have heard this before several times probably, but I, I keep saying this over the years that uh, a rec league middle school soccer team, no offense, I mean, that's great. Rec league middle school soccer, great. Rec league middle school soccer has a better understanding of membership than most local churches. Uh, because if you're a member of the team, does everybody know who's a member of the team? You better believe it. It's crystal clear. Like there's a roster with names on it, and you've got to do certain things to make sure you get on that roster. And once you're on that roster, guess what? You have leaders. You have coaches, right? Not pastors. You have coaches, and they sort of are, are, are over you, and they kind of have authority telling you what to do. And you've got practice, and you've got the games, and there's accountability. And if you don't show up to practice a couple of times, your teammates are all over you. Your coach is going to talk to you about that. You may, you know, there, there's all kinds of accountability there as to who the team is. Now, someone who's not on the team officially could they be allowed to come perhaps and hang out during practice and kick the ball around and maybe run laps with the team? I mean, maybe in some cases you could do that, but it is very clear who is actually officially on the team, who's not on the team, who you are officially accountable to, who you are not officially accountable to. You might have your best friend, one of your best friends might be on another soccer team, right? That's fine, nothing wrong with that. But you know exactly who the players are on your team, whom you're accountable for, and you all work together with different gifts right? Not, not everybody's the goalie, right? Everybody, not everybody's, I don't even know the position, sweeper and whatever all there is, I don't even know. But on a soccer field, not everyone's playing the same position. Not everyone's gifted in the same ways. You have p people fitting their partic particular gifting. Some positions might have more glory attached to them. Some might have less. But it, the fact is, all the positions are vitally important for the game to go well, for the team to play well together. And, and you've got to think not in terms of selfishly, what's best for me, what's best for the team as a whole. And I, I, the, 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 way, the reason I like this illustration, is, be, and I didn't make it up, is because we often think of the soccer team as the paid people at the church, the staff members. So that they're the ones actually on the field playing the game, right? You have the staff people, and then the, the, the members are out in the audience cheering them on. Like, so that's kind of like the congregation during Sundays out in the audience cheering on those who are maybe paid or are on a staff position or, or the elders or whatever. And, and they're saying, you know, go for it. That's great. But the actual work is left to those who are actually paid on staff or who are actually officially elders or pastors of the church. And, and the illustration there is, is incorrect. Uh, actually, the, the coaches might be more like the pastors, and the team is every member of the church. And the people in the stands watching is the world. But, right? So you've got the world watching as we are salt of the earth, light of the world, and as we love each other, care for each other, work together in this mutually accountable relationship led by the coaches, in that the world can look on and see and hopefully be led themselves to become part of this in the future. But um, I, I think the point is that every member has a vital, indispensable part to play in, 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 the, in the church. Oh, yeah. And we've certainly seen that at North Avenue. It's beautiful how the Lord is, orchestrates that and puts that together. Papa? You know, it's, um, Corinthians talks about, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about this today, but that, you know, some are eyes, some are ears, you know, but we can't all have an eye or we couldn't hear. We couldn't all have ears or we couldn't see. So there's a, that we all 
have gifts that have been given by the Spirit, and we use those in our covenant community for the good of the church, for the good of one another, and to glorify Christ. And that's the way God designed the church, I think. Uh, a, um, com a gathering of all people uh, that Christ has redeemed, both Old Testament and New Testament. Yep. Scott, can you help us with uh, just kind of what the church is and, and um, anything else that you have on that other point? Yeah, I'm just in terms of thinking about the church, uh, I, read, I was reading a portion of an article this, this morning, and this is what the, the person said in the article. He said, God is offering you a gift in the local church, both for your good and for the good of others. And I think for me, it's taken me a while to see it as a, as a gift. I think when I became a Christian, I had a radical conversion and loved the Word and had new affections for the Word and wanted to listen to sermons all the time. But I didn't see the, the, the local church as this gift. Like, I would go. Like, we were maybe inconsistent going. I would go, but I wasn't... Sinclair Ferguson says we should fold our lives into the local church. And I wasn't folding my life into the local church. Uh, I would go, but I just didn't see it as a, as a gift of God. But I think what's happened to me over the years, more and more, and even now, even more so, almost every year, it's like I grow in my appreciation for the local church. I really do see it as this amazing gift of God. And I, I think at North Avenue, like you mentioned at the beginning, Jerry, being a part of North Avenue Church and just being able to fold into this church, it's been amazing. And I, I, I've told this probably multiple times, the first time we went to discussion group, at Mark's house, we had heard about discussion group, and it's like this free-for-all, and like any question, and people talk about it, it's like, how could this possibly like go well, like in my mind, because I'm thinking structure, we want structure, this is free-for-all, this is going to be crazy, chaos, but I can still, I have a vivid memory of that first night sitting on, on the other, near your dining room area, and I can still see people in, in the room, like I remember Sarah Fierro, I didn't even know her, and I remember her, I can remember something she said that very night, uh, she was talking about A.W. Tozer, I still remember this, I remember them taking notes, and just being folded in with, with people like that, week in and week out, you're, you're getting involved with people, you're being strengthened by people. It's like you're coming around this warm fire, week in and week out. And that's, so I think coming away from today, we should at least come away with uh, the church is a gift, an incredible gift. We want to fold our lives into it and just be incredibly thankful for the local church that, that God has given to us. Yeah. How about the invisible and invisible? Could, Mark, could you explain that? How oh, is yeah. the church both of those? That's, uh, I, thought, I liked the, what he wrote there. Yeah, so the, 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 the invisible church is made up of genuine believers, right? The invisible church, the true believers. The visible church is like what we have here on a Sunday or what any church has on a Sunday, which is what you physically see with your own eyes. And the reason why it's important to make a distinction between the visible and the invisible church, uh, this is not some little theological nitpicking thing. This has a purpose. So um, is it possible to be, the mem to be a member of, a, of the visible church and not be part of the true invisible church? Yes, both you and I were, right, for a number of years. So, so I, I have been a member of a church visibly, and I was on the roster. Like, if you looked it up, my name was in the membership directory. I was there. I had my, all my information. There I was. But I was not yet truly part of the church. I was not yet born again. And so you could be part of the visible church and not be part of the invisible church. You also, although I, I think this is going to be exceptional, it is possible to be a member of the invisible church, a true believer, and, and, and for extended periods of time not be a part of a, of a local church, but th th to do that indefinitely at a certain point would be a sign of bad health. Scott and I both had a similar situation where we, we were not closely linked to a local church for a number of years after our conversion uh, in any kind of deep way. So, so that's a, an important distinction. Well, this, this term, visible and invisible, is not a, not a new term. This term was batted around. I, I know Augustine had uh, his opinions. Uh, you know, he said, many sheep are without and many wolves are within. 
talking about yeah. the visible, visible versus the invisible church. Of course, Luther and Calvin chimed in on that too. And they sort of defined it uh, together, actually. They didn't disagree on the idea that um, they affirm the invisible church as is as God sees it, you know, a, a community of his sheep, a community of, of his elect that he's called. Uh, they disagreed, Luther and Calvin both uh, disagreed on the Roman Catholic, Catholic Church because they said they had the outward form, the organization, but it was just a shell. So you can have a, a, a church, but it could be just a shell. And we'll get to what constitutes the church, the preaching of the word, the use of the sacraments, the organization, that type of thing. But uh, the invisible church is the reason they call it invisible. You just don't know because only God knows our hearts. We may give the outward indication that we're believers and we may do the right thing, show up, uh, appear to pray, study the word. But inwardly, we're not regenerated. So. Yeah, but the Lord knows who are his. Yes, yep. that's right. 2 Timothy 2.19 for sure. Yep, Scott? Yeah, I think even here, uh, I think somebody famously said, like in heaven, there, there will be surprises. Like there are going to be people there that we didn't think were going to be there. And then there's going to be people missing that we thought for sure would, would be there. Again, the Lord knows who, those are his. But I think, again, when I became a Christian, I think I just assumed everybody in the church was a Christian. At the, at the beginning, I was just thinking everybody's a believer. But then over time, I think I swung totally the opposite direction. I thought, how many people were just like me before. And I started doubting like everybody's salvation. I'm thinking like nobody's a Christian. <laughs> like, I went the other way. And I thought, I think he said, uh, Calvin said that we should have a charitable judgment. That's just a good word. Uh, instead of just trying to look down, that, oh, they did this and this. They can't be a Christian because they said this or this. We should have a charitable judgment. But it also just reminded me again that we need to make our calling and election sure again. Uh, just because it's so essential. It's, we were talking about eternal, eternal things there. But we do should have a charitable judgment when viewing other people. I thought that was a good word. Yeah, Mark, any other thoughts on that? About local and universal. I forgot. Uh, I, I, it may come back to me in a second. Yeah. The local and the universal church was just a short little part that he had there. Popeye, no, you like the metaphors. The metaphors. Oh, I do. It's great. It's on page 366 of your book. Um, but I'm going to jump right in with this metaphor because it just it's, it's one that has provoked me, I think, almost from the day I found it. Um, it actually comes from Isaiah, and Isaiah's talking about Israel, but he's, thus the church, he's talking about us. But he says, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Isn't that pretty awesome? That, to me, that looks forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb. He's my husband. And I'm going to be at that wedding supper because I'm his sheep. Yeah, to be a bride of Christ. But there's, there's many more. Uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb we talked about. And the, uh, he talks about a family, father, brothers, mothers in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Um, I'll be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty in 2 Corinthians. We're the bride of Christ. We know that from Ephesians. I mean... Every time I go to a wedding, I think about that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I love the ceremonies that always include that metaphor. Yeah, Mark, you've helped us before to understand the, that they, the marriage is a picture of 
the gospel. Can you explain that kind of from this way? Yeah, and not to complicate all this, but just if you remember John 2, the uh, turning of water into wine miracle, uh, that, that miracle, and we don't have time to unpack all that right now, but Jesus is sitting here at a wedding. He's a 30-year-old single man sitting at a wedding, and his mother Mary comes up to him and says, hey, you know, the, the bride and groom, there's a little bit of an embarrassment going on here. These weddings would last up to a week long, and they've, they've run out of wine. Like, this is, this is publicly humiliating for this brand new bride and groom. And so she says, Jesus, would you do something about this? And Jesus has this unusual, it just feels like this sort of terse response. So he just says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That's, that's a puzzling response. I mean, you know, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And um, I, I am convinced, don't have time to, to, to argue for this, but I'm convinced based in John's gospel that the phrase his hour refers throughout the whole of his gospel to his death. And I think he's sitting there at this wedding, and I think he's thinking about what every wedding is about, which is his wedding to the church. Yes. And, and, you know, just like you as a single person, if you've ever been at a wedding, you think about your future wedding. Or if, or if you see a wedding as a married person, you can think back on your wedding. It's hard not to think about your own wedding at another wedding, and uh, whether single or married. Jesus is no doubt thinking about the ultimate purpose of every marriage, which is his marriage to the church. And so Jesus is sitting at a, at a wedding, and the wine has run out. And we're told in Isaiah 25, 26, that at the Messianic banquet, the wedding supper of the Lamb, wine is going to flow, and that there's going to be this feast of well-aged wine, well-refined, and that God's going to put death away forever, and He's going to wipe away every tear. That's in Isaiah. So Jesus knew that. That was 700 years before He was born. That was written. So Jesus at this wedding, thinking about His wedding, and He knows that there's going to be wine at His wedding, and wine and blood are often a mixed metaphor in the Bible, like the cup at the Last Supper. The wine represents His blood, right? The covenant, all that stuff. Jesus goes, Mary comes and says, they're out of wine, and Jesus says, woman, what what does this have to do with me? It's not yet my time to die. It's not my hour has not yet come, which is super puzzling. But what's he thinking? He's thinking for me to provide wine for my wedding, I'm going to have to give my life. And he's thinking this wedding is ultimately a, a precursor of, of, my, of my wedding one day. And so what does he do? He turns water from ceremonial washing, which is meant to wash away your sins, the, the Jewish ceremonial purification jars. He turns water to purify you from your ceremonial uncleanness, turns that into wine and says, hey, I'm going to do what no one could do. I, I, I'm going to wash you clean with the blood of the lamb. I'm going to mm. cleanse you, and I'm going to provide wine for my wedding. So Jesus is saying every marriage and every, every time you sit down to eat at the end of a wedding, you should be thinking of Revelation 19 and 20. You should be thinking about the, the marriage mm. feast of the lamb. That's interesting. Scott? Yeah, I mean, just the metaphor aspect of the church is the family of God. I'm just going to read real quick from 1 Timothy 5. Don't have to turn there. I'm going to read the first two verses that, Fred, you referenced. Paul says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So we are the family of God. I love that metaphor. Uh, on 367, uh, Grudem says, the fact that the church is like a family should increase our love and fellowship with one another, sort of at the top of the page there. So this, the fact that we are family should increase our love for one another. And I know I'm sure I've shared this quote before, but uh, one author said, when two people share Christ... Even if everything else is different, they are closer than even blood ties could ever bring them. Again, they are the family of God. So you could have identical twins, one a Christian and one not, and then another person who's a believer, but totally different from this identical twin who is a Christian, and they would have a deeper bond because they share what's, the, the, what's most important to them. They've both been bought with a price, whereas their identical twin would not be. So I mean, just a wonderful reminder that uh, we are the family of God, and this should increase our love for each other. So in light of the fact that we're family, we should, we should love the, the church uh, that we're a part of. And, and I was just thinking, how can we better love th this family of God that we're a part of? And, and we could talk about this. Uh, you could spend all the whole session on that. But one thing certainly must be that we would commit to pray for each other. And I know uh, Greg Rentz talked about this recently, even just giving thanks. I'm not necessarily saying every single person, but uh, regularly we should be praying for other members of the church. No doubt. I mean, we are a family of God. And uh, Ferguson, Singular Ferguson tells this story in one of his books. 
uh, on this about the church, and I shared this at uh, our joint book club a while back, but it was about a guy who was a, a bachelor his whole life, and uh, he was a banker. Uh, I think it was a friend of his. I think it was in a church in Ireland, and he was, uh, all, he, what he did to serve the church was he taught this high school boy's uh, Sunday school class. So I thought of, you know, Chronic and Kraus, Grant Crane, similar, very similar thing, bro Bible type study, and they, they sort of wanted to move him on to something else, but he said, no way, like he didn't want to give up this high school boy's class. And he taught it faithfully for years, but he was committed to, to praying for these guys, and he had his prayer book and with their names listed, and Ferguson just said, an unusual number of these guys became ministers. I mean, an incredible thing, but when, when this guy died, uh, he didn't show up somewhere, I assume, and that they had to call the police to his house, and uh, obviously he didn't answer the door. He, he was dead, but they had to break in the house, and they went, and they found him in his room, and he was on his knees. He had died praying that the, the prayer book of the guys was open before him. He had been going through this list, and I thought, that's how we should be. I mean, we should commit ourselves to praying for the brothers and sisters in Christ because we love them. They are our family. We're the family of God. It should increase our bond and love. So one easy way would just be simply committing ourselves to pray. What a way to love people. That's so good. Very convicting, too. Papa, you've talked about the one another's. You love the one another's. Uh, that's a, one of the most mentioned terms, in, in, certainly in the New Testament. And, and that's that unity that to, to, to get the, the in Christ actually metaphor. We're, we're in union with Christ, and therefore uh, anyone else that's in union with Christ, we are automatically in union with them. And, and it makes the difference because, you know, I've, I, I got kind of sort of reunited with a, with a first cousin of mine that, you know, our grandparents died long ages ago, and so we were, were separated by miles. And so as, as younger children, we really weren't talking about the Bible and theology and that kind of thing. But fast forward to today, he's one of my closest friends. I just love to, to call him up and talk to him about the Bible and talk to him about theology and, and that type thing. And it's, it's like I've got a, uh, an acquaintance from the past that I've, uh, that's a blood relative of mine, but, but we're related differently now. Yeah. This, we're, we're this unity. We have that union in Christ, and, and it makes a difference. Yeah, and it's and I hope you felt that uh, here at North Avenue that just the the bond that we have together, the way we have to pray for each other, to love each other, and uh, and y'all do it very well. And I I could not be more grateful. I think about that very very much. It just really makes me thrilled for our local church. What? How would we distinguish? Go ahead, Mark. Well, I don't yeah. want to interrupt you. No, Jerry. no, no, no. You're in a good thought. Okay, well, just, just turn with me real quick to uh, Ephesians 4. And since the beginning of our church, this has really been one of the foundational texts for sort of how, how we see our, our, our goal here at North Avenue. On our very first retreat, we talked about this passage for anyone who may remember that. But uh, Ephesians chapter 4. If you have an equip shirt, you know what I'm talking about. There was a the black shirt on the back that had the word equip written in about 4,000 point font on the back of the top of the shirt. So we got, we, was, we got it from this passage, and this is just such an important text. So I'm not going to talk about the ascending and descending aspect of this passage because yeah. that's controversial what that could all mean, but just look with me for a second. Look at verse um, uh, 1 of Ephesians 4. I, therefore, Paul says, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with, there's our phrase, one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In all. Now, pa pause there. 
what's Paul doing? He's, he's using words like one and all over and over and over. The point is, we have the same tri- triune God, same Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We have the same Christian baptism. We have the same unity in the Spirit. We have the same love together. So all of us share the most important things in common. That creates our unity. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended above, uh, far above all, all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles and prophets, those are foundational to the church, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers or pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. There's our word equip from the t-shirt. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of, Man, uh, Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Just the the big idea here is this. Verse 11, Christ laid the foundation of the church with the apostles and prophets, which is how we get our New Testament, the apostles and prophets, the inspired writings. Then He gave evangelists, people who preach the gospel and convert people to Christ. Then He gave pastors and teachers, shepherds, teachers, not to do the work of ministry, because you, wouldn't you expect that? The pastors do the work of ministry. No, 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 no. The pastors, verse 12, equip the saints, saints. for the work of ministry. That is crucial. So again, this is the pastors are the coaches, right? The, the, the actual people out there playing the game are not just the pastors. They're the team. It's, the whole, it's all the membership. And so the pastors equip the saints for the work of ministry for what? For the building up of the body of Christ that we might grow in our, in our knowledge and understanding yeah, of who he is. Exponentially more effective that way. There's a lot more people doing that doing actual work, kind of your team analogy there. Scott, help us with what's a, a true church and, and what isn't, or even um, the, the, the purity there even maybe. Well, I think this, this is Mark's domain right here to get us started on this one. I'll yeah. chip into it, but Okay, yeah. well, just, if you know a revelation is written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, I'm gonna be talking about them a little bit today in the sermon, but, so I've been looking at that this week for other reasons. But uh, if you remember, you know, Western Turkey, that little area we've been looking at where Ephesus is and the other six churches, those seven churches that the letter of Revelation is written to, chapters 2 and 3 address each church by name. You remember those little letters to the churches? Well, Jesus is described as a man walking amongst the candlesticks, the candles, which represent the churches, and they're all burning lights and the angels of the churches. And Jesus says, to at least, I don't remember how many, at least two of the churches, maybe more, He says, okay, there's some things I'm commending you for. There's also some things I'm going to warn you guys about. It's amazing. Those seven churches are within, not that far from each other. They're all near the same coast. I mean, they're, they're within, I mean, you could travel easily to these seven churches, and they're all of them in drastically different places spiritually. That's amazing. I mean, two churches can be on the same street, and one of them could be an incredibly healthy church, and one could be barely a church at all on the same street uh, with the word church in their title. So these seven churches, two of them, Jesus gives no commendation, no encouragement. He just says, listen, if you don't repent soon, I'm going to come and remove your candlestick. What that means, commentators are pretty much in agreement on this. That means I'm going to declare in heaven that you are no longer a church. 
You're still going to have the word church outside on the plaque in front of your building. It's going to say First Baptist Church or First Presbyterian Church or whatever. It's going to have the word church there. But I in heaven am going to call it no longer a church. So a church that goes on in whether doctrinal or moral unrepentant sin indefinitely and never corrects it or does anything about it, eventually at some point Jesus will say, I'm removing your candlestick. I'm taking away your lampstand. At some point, you're no longer truly a church in heaven. And certainly, the easy shots would be the cults that we know, like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are easy targets to say they might have the word church or kingdom hall in front of their building, but that does not make them a, a true church. Yeah, that's really good. I think uh, Mark Dever's book, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, or they have this, this, right now they're free on Ligonier's site. They have all these lectures that he and Jonathan Lehman gave. There's like 14 or 15 lectures it's just worth going to, to to soak in to see. I mean, this would be a, what's a very pure church would be practicing all these things like biblical theology. The one on biblical theology was really good that Lehman just went through and talked about how the whole storyline of the Bible should, should be about Jesus. That was just so good where instead of just going to a random text and like trying to pull out some random thing out of it, they're, they're always coming back to, to, to the gospel. And the, the illustration that Lehman used was, he said, say the, the headline in the paper was the, the Cubs win the World Series. He's, and it's a very rare thing. I mean, they did win a few years ago. But the Cubs win the World Series. He said, that's the big thing. He said, your friend maybe read the article, but all he, he read was that the, the, in the seventh inning, some random pitcher came in. He said, yeah, I read about that story with the, the, in the article, but it was just this pitcher came in in the seventh inning. He was like, well, you, you missed the whole thing. Like, you got to tie it into the fact that the Cubs win. The same way a healthy church would be, be showing that this is about Jesus and, and, and that he saves his people. So that would be just a great resource to help see healthy marks of a church. Yeah, Papa. I think, um, again, going back to the Calvin and Luther, one of the, I mentioned this to Mark earlier, one of the blessings we had from the Reformation. Now, they didn't get everything right, and, and we know that, of course, we're armchair quarterbacking from um, a long time ago, but uh, 500 years ago. But they distinguished between a true, what is a true church, and uh, the Lutherans did this, or Luther did this in the Augsburg Confession to find the church as the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments rightly administered. I don't think we disagree with that. And Calvin said the same thing. Whenever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there is not to be doubted a church of God exists. Now, that formula, uh, of course, that's, that was from 500 years ago. It makes you wonder with the hundreds and literally thousands of churches we have in the Bible Belt, how many are really true churches that, that fit this description because it still applies. Now, they were coming out, both Luther and Calvin were coming out of the, the magisterial reformation, which uh, that's simply a term that at that time, the church and the state were linked. And that had to do a lot with the Catholic church. So they were both magisterial reformers. The state had some hand in what the church looked like. Uh, but they didn't disagree with these requirements. So, yeah. And I think that we, he goes on to talk about the purity of the church and the unity of the church and the word to work. And I don't think it should be a 50-50 thing. I think it should be 100% both. We should be a completely pure church. We want to be. And we should work to have unity um, with other churches that are truly churches. Mark, would you help us kind of understand maybe the balance there is where if we just took one or the other, we might miss it. Yeah, I mean, there's an, there's an illustration, you probably heard this, and with every illustration, you've got to be careful what you do with it, but uh, people have said things like, churches are not museums of saints, they're hospitals for sinners. Yes. Have you heard that kind of thing? It's not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. Well, that, that's certainly a good thing to say, provided that the people in the hospital are getting better. 
Okay? So there are, if a church, if you just open all the doors and say, everybody come in, you can join the church no matter how you're living, no matter what you believe, we're just welcoming no matter what, you come in. Well, that, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who have medicine of the gospel that can actually make sins begin to be fought and to be turned away from, repented of, and you can start to see health and healing. So if, a, if, a, if the woman at the well uh, became a Christian yesterday, meeting Jesus at, at the well of Jacob's well, if she then comes to our church today, chronologically that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If she comes to our church today after meeting Jesus yesterday, if she comes here today, is she going to have a lot of things to work through coming out of what she just came out of? Well, yeah, absolutely. By the way, we all have a lot of things to work through, okay? So, so she's going to be starting out at a point that might not look as the same as someone who's been a Christian for 30 years, okay? They're, they're not going to be the same place. That does not mean the church is a, is a bad place of health. It actually is a sign of good health because we're able to welcome in, like Jesus in Luke 15, the tax collectors and sinners gathered together to hear him. They love Jesus. They love to be around him and to hear him. So if you're having people converted out of a rampantly immoral lifestyle, which frankly, who isn't converted out of a rampantly sinful lifestyle? You're converted out of that, that background. You're going to be starting at a point that might be a little different than someone who's been a Christian 30 years. But the fact is, are we all going to be progressing toward Christ-likeness? Yes. And so the issue here is, is, is not that we just kind of let sin be. The issue is we all know what sin is and we're all working. We're all a work in progress. And, and we got a lot of... Lot, a lot of territory to cover before we get where we're supposed to be as individuals. And so I think people are going to be in all different places, but are we all moving in the same direction? That's the question. Uh, so yeah, it's a hospital for sinners. Yes, I'm okay with that, but let's not use that as an excuse for sin. Let's use that as a way to try to get people, all of us, healed of our sin, to, to, to try to get some remedy. Mm -hmm. Scott or Papa? Yeah, I was just thinking in terms of the unity of this individual local church, like North Avenue Church, how much unity we should have in, in our church. And I was reminded of this with Kevin DeYoung wrote an article about 9-11, 20 years celebrating it. And he talked about his day. He was in uh, seminary, I think, and just talked about it. But he was talking about how after that day, he talked about how, how many American flags were flying around everywhere. And there was just like this great unity happened because of this attack. And I thought about the Boston Marathon bombing that was 2013. Three people died. I think tons of people were injured. And there's a Boston Bruins hockey game that happened after that. And it's a moving scene. They, they sing uh, the Star Spangled Banner, and the crowd just sings with just power. People had tears. There was tremendous unity. I think both, both sides, both fans, there was just unity around this attack. Well, I was thinking, how much more unity should we have around the cross? Like, we should have this incredible unity. And I thought about that proverb, the things that the Lord hates, hates th those who sow discord among the brethren. And we should just be pursuing unity with people. Uh, I thought if, if we were feeling at odds with somebody or, or there's bitterness inside of us, it's like we shouldn't take communion at all. We, we got to go and make that right. We don't let that fester. We should just pursue unity. I, I remember dad told me one time where, where someone got upset with something he said publicly. He had no idea this guy got mad at him and he got word that he got, this guy was angry with him. And so my dad immediately has to go make it right. He, he called him up. He said, let's go out to, to lunch. And they went out to lunch. My dad apologized for it. And, and they built this great relationship because he was pursuing unity. So I just think we need to be after unity. If we are at all at odds with somebody else in the church, we got to go and make it right. And we should just have this incredible unity because of the cross of Christ. There should be incredible unity in our church. That's good. That, that's the one anotherness again. Yeah. No, no, it sure is. The purposes of the church. I love this. This is on 373. Ministry to God in worship. Ministry to believers in nurture. And ministry to the world. Evangelism and mercy. And I imagine all churches are going to maybe be a little better at one of those than the other. Could be. But those three um, kind of cover a lot of ground. Mark, any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, is, that is a lot, uh, a lot there. I'm trying to think of a good text. 
Y'all got anything on that? I need to think of a better text to go to. Doesn't Colossians 3 say it's not sing hymns and, and uh, mm-hmm. psalms and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your hearts uh, to God? I know we enjoy uh, worshiping at a, a church in, in Savannah. It's uh, a Presbyterian church. And, uh, you know, they use the Psalter, for example, as part of their It's a little bit higher Presbyterian church, but they use the Psalter, and that's pretty cool because I'd never been exposed to the Psalter before going to that church. But every Sunday they sang from the Psalter, not all the hymns, but uh, they, they have books too. <laughs> so part of the ministry to God there in that, in right, the way they right. worship that way. Right, part of the praise and singing psalms, mm-hmm. that's the Psalter, so. Yeah, Scott, I wish we had, we could play it right now if we had it on, uh, I don't know if we were doing YouTube already, but when you went through the list of people that at North Avenue that had different giftedness and, and how they use that in such an effective way. But uh, I thought about this. Um, all three of, all of us want to be about these three things, but some sure have a, a gift of evangelism that is different than someone that leans toward disciple and others. Where Papa's the, the, the disciple of the decade, there could be that, that others are, are, are really... Josh Chronic with evangelism. Help us to, to understand just how all three of these are really important. Yeah, well, I was thinking of the, the middle one in terms of ministry to believers, this nurture aspect. And I'll just read a, a text from Colossians, which I love this passage. Colossians 1, you can turn that if you want. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. This is just such a, a great passage. Uh, Paul says in verse 28, him we proclaim. So Jesus we proclaim. We want to be out about Jesus proclaiming him. He says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And why, why do we do this? He says, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We want to present everyone mature in Christ. And then he, he says how serious he is about it. Verse 29, for this I toil. He agonizes over this, but not with his own energy, struggling with all God's energy, his energy that he powerfully works within me. I love that. Uh, we should be passionate about seeing people grow in Christ likeness. We want to be toiling about this, agonizing over this, using God's energy to see people growing in Christ likeness. I, I, I think I preached on this at one point. And I remember I used this, an illustration about Jerry Bridges that somebody said at the very end of his life, like he was just pouring himself out, even to the very end of his life. He was pouring himself out to see people grow in Christ likeness. I think uh, a healthy church, I think Mark Dever said, should be a spiritual greenhouse where you're, you're thriving spiritually in a healthy church. You're getting around believers. You're, 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 you're growing in Christ likeness in a spiritual greenhouse. And I think another person said in a, in a healthy church, it's, it's normal to talk about spiritual things. I mean, it's just normal. And I think that I've seen that time and again in a church where it's just, it's normal. I think Olivia mentioned this, that she's, she's living with Erica and Cynthia now. And she talked about how just it's just talking about spiritual things just happens all the time with, with her roommates just because they, they share this bond. So it's like, at North Avenue, I've just seen it over and over where it's just almost, it's a strange thing when you leave a conversation, you don't talk about Christ. It's just, it's the most common thing. You're going to bring back Jesus. You're going to bring back spiritual things. It's for ultimately for, for the edification of people. And we should be wanting to see people make progress, see people, progress and joy in the faith, that type of thing. I've loved that about our church. And I just hope that we continue to do that, you know, more and more. Well, we don't have to have big crusades and tents and, and that kind of thing. Uh, it, it can be one-on-one discipleship. It, at um, Jerry Joe's or something. And uh, that's a very effective way to share the gospel. Yeah. Well, and from the beginning, we thought, well, how great is it if uh, unbelievers that are visiting the church, that they see that, the joy, the love, the one another going on, and they see, and we've seen it over and over in uh, different people that have begun to come, hear the word, see the difference in the people, 
The teaching of our Savior is made attractive, and they want to know Jesus. And that's the way the Lord uses it, Mark. Yeah, maybe jumping out of order here just for a second, we were distinguishing between uh, the universal church and the local church at one point, and it's something I didn't get to mention then, was um, the, the difference between the universal church, which we're a part of if we're believers, and the local church, which is individual local churches, which are, there's how many of them around the world, the difference there is in, in how we're accountable. So, for instance, if I have friends that are deacons and whatnot at Redeemer Presbyterian Church down the road, which definitely preaches the gospel, faithful church, we would have different, different disagreements on obvious things. <laughs> we're, we're not Presbyterian, but like, they, they, we love that church, wonderful church, wonderful people there. If there, if there is a, if, if, if there's a tragedy that takes place at, for a member at Redeemer, that is not our responsibility in the same way it is Josh Roberts, who I teach with, is a deacon there. He, he, he takes a far higher level of responsibility being a member of that church, also, also a deacon of that church. He takes really high level responsibility in a way that we would not feel the same burden of responsibility because we don't have the same level of accountability there. But if a tragedy happens in this church, it's, that's on us. That's our responsibility. Not, J- Josh Roberts is not supposed to come take care of that for us from Redeemer. We're supposed to take care of that. So the, the, it's about levels of accountability. Similarly, like I'm part of the human race, but we're not all part of the same uh, nuclear family. And there's different levels of accountability there. And so um, our, our local church family is our highest level of accountability on earth, along with our fo- physical family. And then you move out from there caring for other local churches in need. And then you move out from there to the unbelieving world that we also care for needs there as well. So it's about, I think, levels of accountability. Who, who, who am I directly accountable to? And, and who am I less so? Francis, yeah. Francis Schaeffer said that, the, that what we're talking about is the mark of a Christian. That the world's, uh, God's given the world the right to judge whether or not we're believers by how we love one another, how we care for one another. They will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. That's exactly right. He wrote a little book, The Mark of a Christian, on that particular. Yeah, on that last page, uh, 374, I like to love that bottom paragraph. However, individuals are different from churches in placing a relative priority on one or another of these purposes of the church because we are like a body with diverse spiritual gifts and abilities. And we'll be talking about that in uh, a week or two here. It is right for us to place most of our emphasis um, on the fulfillment of that purpose of the church that is most closely related to the gifts and interests God has given us. Someone with the gift of evangelism should, of course, spend some time worshiping and caring for other believers, but may end up spending the vast majority of his time in evangelistic work. Someone who is gifted worship leader may end up devoting 90% of his or her time in the church toward preparation for leading worship. This is only an appropriate response to the diversity of gifts that God has given us. And so I hope that we look around and we see other people's gifts and we're not jealous of those or we're not um, envious in any way, but we are quick to cheer for the other guy saying they're on our team. They have a greater giftedness in all of these areas than I do, but we are thrilled with that and thankful for that and, uh, and come alongside to use the gifts that we have, whatever they are. Um, I love the way the body works together. The elbows certainly isn't the shoulder nor the Achilles tendon, but they <laughs> all operate to make that body work. And I think that's what's, uh, Lord willing, what we want to happen at North Avenue. Any final thoughts? 
One quick thing on the evangelism thing, which Mark, you've, you've said this so many times, we think of evangelism Lone Ranger style. Now, some people who are gifted do that, but I just thought about evangelism in a local church setting. It's such a wonderful way to do evangelism. I thought about Fa, who was from Thailand, who came, and Hannah Hughes, I think, made the initial uh, relationship, but she brought a bunch of people in with her. Erica, I think, Wes and Holly, and they had her over for dinner, and they're all together helping with her. To, she didn't know anything about the Bible, and they were helping her. Their strength in numbers. I just think, oh, the, the evangelism with other believers is such a, a, a better way, like somebody like me, I'm not as gifted in evangelism, but to be able to do it with other people, it, it lightens the burden, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think so too. Papa, would you um, pray for us and thank the Lord for, for what he's doing here at North Ave, but also to, for um, other churches today um, in, in um, our area and in the world? Thank you, Jerry. Um, before I pray, I want to uh, read just for emphasis because we just have been talking about this, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and to the measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ. Father, I'm so thankful that, um, that we have the church, and in particular, in, in our case, in this room, we're North Avenue Church. It, it's been a blessing for uh, over five and a half years now to be a part of this community. And I've witnessed uh, this, the application of, of the giftedness uh, by so many members and so many uh, different ways. Uh, it, it's, it's just incredible. And I think one of the reasons why I'm able to observe a lot of this is that we're not some uh, 5,000 member megachurch. And so I really have had the opportunity to really get to know people in a way that I haven't before in, in churches in the past. And I'm thankful for that. Lord, thank you for being head of the church. Thank you for giving your life for the church. Thank you that one day you're going to gather your church. And as Mark mentioned, at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And boy, what a joyful day that will be when, when we're gathered together to celebrate uh, the unity, the, the blessing of our salvation, our redemption uh, in our God, our creator, and in Christ, his son. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name, and I, and I pray for all the communities in the Athens area. This is always a, a big time for churches as the students come back, and uh, there's rallies for, to, to gather, particularly college, college students and, and new individuals. But as, as we know, I, I think uh, we've we got to be careful sometimes because uh, uh, we've got to make sure that we hold true to the doctrine that we've been given, we, we hold true to the word, that we preach the word, that we rightly administer the sacraments or the baptism in the Lord's Supper. And, um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm just grateful, Father, that we do that here. And I'm not being prideful. I'm just being humble in that admission. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. And uh, let's take Scott's uh, kind of um, challenge to, to our to pray for um, our church um, through this week. And, and uh, until we go to the intermediate state, coming soon. <laughs>